listening to the Atlas Investor Podcast with Portfolio Wealth Manager, International Real Estate Investor, and Global Citizen, Tiho Brakan. Join us as Tiho helps you grow your wealth, reduce your risk, and increase your freedom. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the Atlas Investor Podcast with Tiho Burkan. Thank you so much for joining us today for episode number six. Tiho, my friend, how are you doing today? Are you ready to record this episode? Yes, I am, Jordan. I'm doing very well. Uh, let's get straight into it. Now, tell us where you are today and what you will be covering in this episode. I'm sending you very warm regards. Actually, in this context, very cold regards from Paris, France. One of the most beautiful, most romantic, and most historical cities on the planet. Uh, and in the global macro talk, I'll be discussing credit markets, in particular emerging market debt, high-yielding debt, and investment-grade corporate debt. Okay, Tiho, so you're in France, Paris, France, I should say. Now, please give us a little bit of general information about Paris and France, maybe some things that are uh, some statistics that investors and listeners are not totally familiar with, because I think France, to most people, is fairly well known. Yeah, well, if you were to ask my girlfriend this question, she would say the best statistic is the most amazing and the most tasteful croissants in the world. So, uh, you know, depending on what the statistics we're looking at. But for investors, I think France is a very, very uh, difficult uh, place to be very profitable. Uh, I think the bureaucracy is on the high end. Uh, the political system is not all that friendly and open towards investors. Taxes are very high. Uh, also, the real estate prices are, you know, fully priced, in my opinion, or very highly priced. Paris is one of the most expensive cities in the world when it comes to buying central real estate or apartment right in the main districts uh, because Paris is divided into uh, all these districts starting with one and then going circularly around uh, two, three, four, five, six and so forth. So uh, Saint-Germain Boulevard is uh, five and uh, number one is the center. Number eight is a very expensive and affluent part of Paris. But these prices uh, go up to 17000 uh, U.S. dollars per square meter, uh, which is something similar to about one and a half thousand U.S. dollars per square foot. Uh, furthermore, this is a developed country, Jordan. Uh, so when it comes to business opportunities, which we'll also cover in the segment too, uh, a lot of them have already been done. The big companies are exploiting things from uh, day to day, from month to month and year to year. So, you know, uh, it's not that easy to just come in with a brand new idea the way that you could when you're coming to emerging or frontier markets in uh, Asia, in Latin America, or in Eastern Europe, or even in Africa to a degree. So, um, you know, I think the best way uh, to play France from my perspective and for retail investors at home is using the uh, stock market ETF, Jordan. So I think uh, this is where we should cover things firstly and foremost. Sounds good. Now let's get into that. How has the French equity market performed in recent years? Well, it's done pretty well over the last several months, but it hasn't done all that well over the last several years. Uh, 
I would like to take a step back, first of all, and say that this is the first time on the podcast that we're actually discussing a country which actually has a stock market ETF. EWQ is the ticker for a French stock market, which basically tracks the uh, MACI France, uh, which is basically the French stocks priced in US dollars. Uh, the French stock market has gone up around, I think, about almost four times over the last two decades. So it hasn't performed as well as some other markets. Uh, and the majority of that performance actually came in the uh, last cyclically, cyclical bull market, not the current one. And that was from March 2003 until October 2007, uh, just prior to the GFC, global financial crisis in 2008. Uh, during that period, French stock market went up by more than three times. Uh, majority of the gains since then have been basically in recovery mode. And it was only recently, several weeks ago, that the French stock market uh, made all-time new highs, Jordan. So we're just uh, breaking out out of this pattern, which started in uh, 2007, as I said. And then we kind of tested that in 2014 with the peak. Uh, and then we had another correction, and then we recently uh, were breaking out to, towards all-time new highs. So we've had a lost decade in French equities, Jordan. Now, Tiho, what do you expect, what kind of returns from this market moving forward? And maybe in your answer, you could also touch on the current valuations. Yes, well, uh, cyclically adjusted price-to-earnings ratio in France is a little bit uh, cheaper than the United States, but not that dramatically cheaper. So we're sitting around 21, I believe. Uh, now, United States is just over 30 now. So that's getting into extreme territory, as we discussed several podcasts ago. And uh, this is a 95th percentile for United States. So forward returns for United States might be actually very disappointing. On the other hand, the French stock market, uh, you know, it's kind of priced in the middle. It's not cheap and it's not expensive. So uh, because we've had a technical uh, lost decade where the prices moved sideways with a crash in 2008, uh, followed by a crash in 2011 during the Eurozone crisis, and then another correction in 2014-15 during the uh, powerful US dollar rally and the crash in commodities and oil, and also the crash in the Chinese stock market, which have, you know had ripple effects throughout the world. All of these things set back uh, the French market, uh, which... I guess, has been struggling uh, similar to the economy over the last decade. Now, if uh, we were to uh, imagine that lost decades, uh, you know, tend to disappoint investors and therefore the preceding 10 years after that tend to be uh, much better for investors, one could imagine that the French stock market from here could perform very well. Having said that, despite uh, being depressed for 10 or uh, 11 years, uh, one of the things that I'm worried about is that the French stock market is just breaking out right now, uh, but we're very late in the uh, expansion cycle in the United States. And the U.S. stock market predominantly uh, you know, leads the global stock market. And when the U.S. stock market goes down, if it does, uh, it drags other markets in a negative uh, way as well. So the correlation tends to start to rise. And all stock markets tend to follow the United States when the selling pressure occurs. So uh, the fact that the French stock market is breaking out so late in the expansion cycle and the bull market, judging from the perspective of the United States, has me a little bit worried. Because at any point in time, if we have some kind of a setback in the United States, the French stock market 
could also experience a similar setback and the recent breakout could be a false hope. So uh, something to keep an eye out on, Jordan. Okay, yeah. So, so it doesn't sound like a market that you want to be chasing. Now, let's get into real estate. Are there any opportunities that you see there that an investor could benefit from? Well, I think one of the things that when we discuss uh, France in particular, especially Paris too, uh, real estate is priced very highly. And if you mix that together with a high taxation in France, I'm not really a fan and I'm not really an investor either. So uh, Paris is actually priced uh, in some ways uh, similar to New York and Tokyo. That's the way that I look at it. It's a little bit cheaper than Hong Kong and London when it comes to prime A-grade real estate. So we're looking at it, like I said, about $17,000 per square meter or $1,500 per square foot. Uh, this is a little bit more expensive than New York, maybe just slightly, but maybe it's similar depending on which statistics we use from which real estate company and so forth. And uh, it's a little bit more expensive than Tokyo. The rental yields, the gross rental yields for all of those three range between 2.7 to 2.9 with New York returning the best. So the rent per square meter is about 35 to $45 depending on the location. And in real estate, location, location, location is the most important thing. Uh, so very high priced markets. These two, the, these three that we discussed are all in the top six of the world, uh, including Monaco, London and Hong Kong being the top three. So, uh, you know, you're looking at anywhere between 35 times to 38 times uh, price to rent ratios. So, you know, this is not really a place. For most investors, you do need a large amount of capital and uh, you, you do need to take on a large amount of debt through a mortgage if you want to borrow. Uh, sometimes you, you can borrow as a foreigner, but most times that's very difficult. Uh, so when it comes to, for example, purchasing a Paris real estate and then doing some renovations, uh, there is a few opportunities here and there from what I saw attending uh, quite a few uh, real estate uh, stores and uh, shops, but uh, in particular, when you think about it and do the basic uh, mathematics, uh, any kind of a profit that you might walk away with will be taxed very heavily. So, uh, or in some cases, even the regulations are annoying. And, uh, you know, so generally speaking, for me, Paris and France is not of interest, Jordan. Okay, with that being said, uh, I just want to get your thoughts on if you saw any business opportunities there. And in addition to that, Maybe you could uh, delve a little bit more into how high the taxes are there if you were going to be starting a business. Sure. Well, um, business opportunities, I think uh, France, first and foremost, is the most visited country in the world. French Riviera in the south has about 10 to 12 million tourists arriving every year that are internationals. And Paris itself uh, has something similar, if not even higher. So uh, I think Paris is around 14 to 14 and a half million. Um, and it's estimated to grow in the next few years to over 15 million tourists arriving. So obviously tourism is the very, very de developed. So uh, from that aspect, uh, there is not much you can do. And there is a lot of competition to be had. Um, if I was to do anything, uh, and I'm not an expert in this field by any means, but I noticed that uh, Paris in particular is going through a food revolution. So we are changing from the old historic ways. And this has been already, by the way, happening for several years. Uh, it's not something new that I've noticed that no one else has. But basically, we have a resurgence of old brasseries that are becoming very retro, very modern. 
you know, for the first time in, in several years, uh, the, hipster, the hipsters are kind of uh, bringing uh, new tastes, new flavors, and uh, uh, new coloring menus to, to Paris culture. And you even got the hamburger shops, you got the food trucks, you got all these kind of new trends happening. Healthy foods also occurring too. Uh, so, you know, I would maybe look in towards that way. Uh, if I was an investor or a businessman in this pers uh, perspective, but uh, everything else, uh, you know, very, very difficult unless you're a big company. Uh, when it comes to answering your second part of your question, which is connected to taxation, uh, the corporate taxation, in my opinion, is one of the highest in the world uh, for a developed country like this. So we're looking at 33.3%. Um, we're looking at also a value added tax of another 20%. So VAT. Uh, which is a sales tax, and then we're looking at a top marginal individual taxation at 50.2%, which is, in my opinion is just ludicrous. Um, uh, and then withholding taxes, uh, when you're paying yourself dividends or interest or whether you're receiving interest or dividends, we're looking at 30%. So a very high taxation and uh, lots of bureaucracy. Um, some laws are very outdated uh, when hiring people, when firing people. Uh, social security taxes are very high, so not a place that I would want to be an investor. The only way that I would play France, in my opinion, is uh, through the stock market. But one thing that I want to bring to our listeners' attention is that you don't necessarily have to play the French stock market via the EWQ ETF, because if you were to look at United Kingdom, Germany, France, and Switzerland, uh, these top European countries, even to some degree Sweden and Netherlands and so forth, they all kind of correlate in similar ways. So a basket of all these uh, countries, it might be a smarter and a better way to play it because you get the same kind of a move, but you diversify yourself a little bit more. So in case one of the French companies has a problem or one of the German companies has a problem, you're kind of diversifying yourself more. So that might be the smartest way by buying one of the European ETFs instead of just a French one. Now, Tio, this is something we, we talked about in our prep, but I just want you to inform the listeners. So just as we were going through this, I had the thought, well, I mean, the, the, the wealthy and really wealthy people in France, given these taxes, I mean, what do they do? They probably don't want to live there anymore. I mean, they probably want to live in a nearby place where they're not as highly taxed. I mean, what what are your thoughts on that and, and I guess the the impact on France and I guess surrounding areas? Yeah, well, uh, you know, there is no, uh, it's, it's not a surprise at all to me that France, France is uh, surrounded by tax havens. Uh, to the north and the northwest, you have the Channel Islands. Uh, so basically, usually more used by the UK and the Brits, but nonetheless, you have Jersey, Jersey and Guernsey. Uh, then you have the Isle of Man in between of uh, uh, Ireland and the UK. Uh, you know, down to the south, uh, you have Malta all the way down south, and you have Gibraltar and that goes to Spain, and then right on the border with France, you have Andorra, and then you have the famous Monaco, which the French can't really use properly because a lot of the laws state that you know taxes are exempt, income taxes are exempt, but unless you're a French, <laughs> so that, that's very difficult. Across the border to the east, you have Switzerland and Liechtenstein. That's also very interesting. Down in Italy, you have San Marino, and then you also have. Uh, up, I think that one of the most famous uh, kind of stealth tax havens for the French is Belgium, which is kind of to the northeast. And that's where a lot of people tend to move because even though on the surface, 
Belgium looks like one of those countries with high taxes, they're actually uh, very useful for people with passive incomes who are receiving dividends or interest or have uh, stakes in companies but don't earn salaries. So uh, people such as the owner of the Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy have moved from France to Belgium, and that's kind of like a typical tax haven that a lot of French people would use, Jordan. But it doesn't surprise me at all that France is basically surrounded by tax havens because uh, quite a lot of capitalistic minds are sick and tired of the socialistic uh, laws and very, very high taxes, which stifles growth and doesn't enable uh, the French economy or the GDP to really expand. Um, you know, France is a 2.5 trillion United States dollar economy with a almost a $39,000 uh, GDP per capita. So there is uh, almost 70 million people living in France. And in my opinion, uh, such a developed country, such a large country, such a wealthy country like this should not be run in this way. But hey, you know, I'm not a French politician, so who am I to say anything? And you're not French either, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But I do enjoy French culture, French cheese, French wine, uh, French croissants. And, uh, uh, you know, it's a wonderful place to visit. So I'm not surprised that more than 85 million people visit France every year, Jordan. One of the, the most visited places on the planet when it comes to tourism. Okay, well, thank you for all that information. It's, it's really interesting and fascinating. Now, before we get to the global macro segment, uh, you've covered a lot here with France. I've learned a lot. Please give us your final verdict on the country. Enjoy the country. Visit the country. I visited Paris over 20 times in my life, and I'm quite young. So, uh, you know, do enjoy yourself when you go there. It's, it's a stunning place uh, during summer, during autumn, during spring even during winter, uh, but just don't do any business and investment there. Do yourself a favor. <laughs> okay, Tio, so far we have discussed U.S. stocks, U.S. Treasury bonds, foreign stocks, and in particular, emerging market stocks, global currencies, and alternative assets. Now, today, you are going to cover the credit markets. Please tell us a little bit about credit markets. Well, investors at home, and uh, not just at home, but even the big investors have usually two ways to invest into a, let's say, a company. They can either buy the equity of the company, which people at home are more familiar with, and that means owning equities or shares, as they're called, or stocks. Or you can lend money to the company, and that's in form of extending credit to the company or uh, creating a bond agreement between you and the company where the company promises that it'll pay you back a fixed income over a certain maturity, uh, meaning five years, seven years, ten years. Uh, the longer the maturity, uh, you know, the higher the volatility bond, and the shorter the maturity, obviously, lower the volatility. Um, so, yeah, we have – these are known as – long duration and short duration bonds. Uh, when it comes to credit, there is many, many things that we can discuss and many things that we can follow. But to keep it very simple, I basically just follow investment grade, corporate bonds, emerging market, uh, sovereign and corporate bonds in, in one, and then junk grade, or as they're known also as high yielding bonds. So those are the three that we're going to focus on today. Uh, they're very important to investors who are willing to get a higher premium than treasuries in a fixed income market. And also they're very important 
because they're a great barometer of financial market health and possibility of turning po major turning points in economic uh, activity. So, you know, movement from economic expansion to a contraction and so forth. Now, Tiho, can you tell us about the specific credit assets that you track and how they've performed over the last few years? Sure. Well, let's start with investment-grade bonds. Uh, the ETF that people usually would know at home is LQD. Uh, these bonds uh, tend to yield anywhere between uh, seven, eight percent on the upside of the last, uh, let's say, twenty years to, to towards three percent on the downside. Really, the yield has been quite low as of late, suppressed and artificially pulled down by the central bank QE and monetary easing and interest rates sitting uh, at basically zero bound from two thousand late two thousand and eight until basically the end of two thousand and fifteen. So naturally, the the central banks around the world have suppressed returns, they've dragged down fixed income uh, you know, yields, and therefore these bonds don't yield as much anymore. Uh, ha having said that, when yields drop, prices rise and vice versa. So the central banks have really stimulated current returns, and uh, well, we're not very sure what's going to happen in forward returns, but the lower the yields are on these bonds, on these fixed income instruments, the lower the future returns will be. Uh, I think over the last uh, uh, 20 years, the corporate bond market has returned about three times uh, using the ETF, let's say. So uh, in particular, the strongest returns uh, came right after uh, 2001, 2002 period uh, when the stock market was peaking and we had the September 11 uh, incident and so forth. Uh, after that, as the, as the Nasdaq bubble crashed, uh, Fed stimulated the economy under Alan Greenspan and they cut the rates uh, from very high levels down into uh, almost below 2% under Ben Bernanke in 2004, just prior to 2005. Uh, that saw the corporate bond market do very well in that period. We had a huge setback during the GFC, as everyone's familiar with, uh, and around that time, corporate bonds were yielding uh, over 9% at one point in October 2008. That obviously was the low uh, in hindsight and set up a lot of the investors who purchased at that time for great returns going forward. So uh, from 2008, 2009 period, all the way to 2013, corporate bonds had a very, very smooth ride. Uh, and it wasn't until 2013 as well as 2015 that we saw some shocks under the taper tantrum and then uh, the first rate hike by the Federal Reserve, and then the Trump election, which was kind of uh, thought to be inflationary. So bonds had a few setbacks, but they still remain, these bonds still remain in an uptrend. Moving along towards uh, junk grade bonds, which is the uh, other ones that I would like to uh, cover, uh, they tend to yield even more and have even more premium than corporate grade bonds, naturally and obviously, uh, and uh, quite a similar picture. Uh, you know, uh, they tend to pay uh, a very high premium in times of uh, turmoil and panic and fear. And during 2001 to 2003, bear market and the rec global recession, we saw these bonds yielding somewhere around 14% or even higher. Uh, during the GFC of 2008, the, the yield on these bonds, on John Gray bonds, got over 22% at one point. And during the recent two episodes of risk-off events, which was 2011-12 Eurozone debt crisis, 
as well as the emerging market crash and the commodity oil bust of 2015-16, we saw these junk-grade bonds yield around 10%. So quite a nice premium uh, relative to treasuries when things do go bad, Jordan. And you really got to be willing to step in as a contrarian when everybody else is selling to, to gain some very good returns from these kind of bonds, whether it's investment grade, emerging market, uh, or high yielding bonds. No, I just have a quick follow up on that. If you would have bought at the 2009 bottom, if you would have bought, uh, uh, junk bonds, investment grade bonds, and then the spider ETF, the spy, uh, which as far as total return, which one performed the best? I think the stock market or equity markets tend to always outperform eventually. Uh, up to a certain point, going back to 2014, I think that uh, junk bonds did better than stocks. Uh, you know, but eventually now the stocks are doing better, and uh, always over the long term, uh, equity will do better than uh, credit. Uh, having said that, the uh, advantages of credit is that they have less volatility and they have um, less momentum in, in some ways. So, for example, whenever you see a fall in bonds, uh, of in this case we're talking about credit, junk credit or corporate credit, the higher the grade, the less there is uh, of a momentum there is to, to slow the trade down on the downside. So what I mean by that is when you see a sharp sell-off in bonds, they usually bottom on a V-trough. They don't need a double bottom or a triple bottom or a breath divergence or a shift in sentiment. Uh, so bonds are, bonds have a different kind of a characteristic to it, and and therefore they're much easier to trade in some ways because their volatility is much much lower. When we saw junk bonds sell off uh, during the episode when oil prices were crashing, and a lot of the junk bond sector coming from the energy side of things was affecting the overall index. Uh, eventually, as oil bottomed in January 2016, so did junk bonds, and the reversal was incredibly sharp. And 2016 into 2017 was one of the greatest performances for junk bonds in the history of the index, dating back to the 80s. So, um, you know, when the panic ends, you should buy some bonds because the recoveries are very sharp, very swift, and uh, they do very good for your NAV, your NAV asset value. Okay, thank you for that. That's great information. Now, Tiho, uh, you can also use credit assets uh, to track the overall health of financial markets and economic activity. So how does one do this? Well, we're basically looking at a spread between the, what's known as a risk-free treasury government bonds uh, relative to these credit um, markets and assets. Uh, basically, the, the, the overall view is that the government has the ability to finance itself much easier uh, than a corporation can. A corporation can go bankrupt a lot easier. Uh, governments can, uh, you know, borrow larger amount of money from other countries, from other investors. Uh, they can raise taxes on the uh, individuals and the corporations and trusts and foundations and charity charity organizations. They can do all of those things. Plus, they have the ability to actually print money or in some cases get the central bank, which is meant to be an independent body, but really it's not. We all know they all work together under the banana republic uh, to monetize each other's debt and to prop up uh, the overall uh, physical policy, which there is no money by taxpayers to be paid, uh, and so on and so forth. So in that case, government bonds are known as uh, risk-free rate of return bonds. And um, let's say if they're yielding 2% 
and the junk rate is yielding 5%, we have a spread of 3%. And we tend to track these credit spreads, whether it's investment grade or junk grade or emerging market bonds, uh, because uh, narrowing spreads are very healthy. Uh, and it means that the economy is doing well, uh, the economic activity is growing, and investors are actually comfortable uh, buying higher risk bonds as opposed to risk-free bonds like treasuries, uh, and they're collecting that premium. On the other hand, when the credit spreads are widening, uh, there is a you know a risk-off event of some kind, uh, and maybe the credit is not flowing as well within the system, and at the same time, there could be problems around the horizon because there is an old saying that says uh, bond investors are much, much more clued on than equity investors at major turning points. So credit spreads, uh, very, very important uh, sentiment indicator, economic activity indicator, and overall uh, health uh, and a barometer of financial markets, Jordan. Uh, very wide spreads tend to be usually signs of a nearby bottom for the overall economic activity, equity markets, and economic expansions, and very narrow spreads. Uh, while they can last for a long period of time, like we saw between 2004 and 2007, eventually credit spreads will widen, especially when central banks uh, artificially suppress them for long periods of time. And if you keep the basketball un in your pool under the water for enough, and as soon as you release it, it will bounce out of water and spike you back in the head. And that's the way, you know, when you compress something artificially for a long period of time, uh, it could punish you on the way back. So we are watching at very compressed credit spreads here and uh, wondering whether the current state uh, of credit spreads is signaling uh, another, uh, you know, start of widening, a widening trend around the corner. Something to really think about uh, as we discussed this podcast in November of 2017. Okay, so can you delve into that? What are credit spreads telling you right now? Well, we've recently been very peaceful uh, until... Uh, like I said, November 2017, where we, where we saw huge uh, widening in spreads uh, in emerging market and junk grade. Not so much yet in corporate grade, but nevertheless, for a period since January 2016 all the way until today, um, the credit spreads have by and large been narrowing. Everything's been going good. And I think the uh, global equity markets are up. Uh, 15 out of the last 16 months. And this year, the all country world index of all the stock markets around the world uh, is up every single month, something we haven't seen since the index was formed in 1988. So, uh, you know, January, February, March, all the way until November, every month is green. So we've had a very peaceful time. But now credit spreads are starting to widen, which means treasuries are doing okay or outperforming credit. And investors are switching back to risk-free, safe assets like treasury bonds or raising cash. And they're selling these credit markets such as emerging market debt, high yield debt, and so forth. Uh, this could be uh, an early warning sign that there's something wrong. Because the last time we saw an event like this, or at least the starting of an event like this, was in the middle of 2014 prior to a U.S. dollar rally and a euro crash prior to uh, oil and commodities going down very hard and just prior to Chinese stock market having a crash and emerging markets having a serious problem. Uh, so we also saw an expanding uh, credit spreads prior to Eurozone crisis, prior to the GFC, 
prior to the Asian financial crisis in 1998 and also the NASDAQ and uh, TMT bubble collapse in 2000, 2001, 2002 period. So uh, widening credit spreads from very, very, very low levels and suppressed levels uh, where we are today, thanks to central banks, as I've already stated, uh, could be an early warning sign that something could start to go wrong. It might not be something serious, uh, but at least it could signal that, that there is a correction coming uh, after such an overheated uh, positive risk on run. Okay, Tio. So with all that being said, tell us your final verdict on credit markets at this point in the investment cycle. Well, one of the things, uh, uh, instead of telling you the verdict of uh, let's stay away from them or let's buy them, I would like to discuss uh, two important points here. Uh, which will basically tell you the answer. The first one is that the spread between United States Treasury yield and the European junk bond yield, which is the euro uh, index of these junk bonds that we were talking about before, has now turned negative. So in other words, US Treasury 10-year yield is yielding higher rate of return promised for the next 10 years than the European junk bonds, which are priced in euros, not the United States reserve currency dollars, and also, this is junk grade debt. This is, this is something like along the lines of triple C debt. So, uh, very bad quality. And some of these, uh, corporations in there and, uh, they might end up going bust and you might not even see some of your money being returned, let alone getting the return on the capital. Um, you might not even get the return off your capital. Uh, this has never before happened. Uh, going back to the 80s when the index, the junk bond index around the world started. And I'm pretty sure if we had junk bond indices started uh, and data going back to 140 years, similar to when we look at the S&P 500 or Dow Jones, I am also sure that this would never happen. So this is a very, very strange phenomenon. Uh, it's primarily because of uh, central bank easing. Uh, European Central Bank and the Bank of Japan is now buying everything, including stock ETFs and corporate bonds, and they're running out of things to buy to stimulate the economy and print the money. So therefore, there are various uh, institutions out there, such as pension funds and mutual funds that have certain quotas for their asset allocations. And one of the asset allocation models might read that you must own 5% of junk bonds in your overall asset allocation. From this perspective, you are forced to be buying European junk bond index, which is yielding less than treasuries, which makes no sense whatsoever. So I think this is one of the things that will really end badly. Uh, and finally, when we look at high yield bonds, which we just discussed, and also corporate bonds relative to treasuries, over time, they tend to do better than treasuries. And this is obvious because they have, a, a, a first of all, a positive carry with a premium, and uh, second of all, uh, they tend to be priced at a, uh, a, a much uh, higher rate of return because investors take more risk there. Uh, currently, uh, you know, when we look at the history back to the 80s in some cases or even the 70s, uh, we have never had outperformance of high yield or corporate uh, debt uh, as, let's say, uh, strong as it is today. So if we believe in mean reversion markets where mean uh, reversion ha occurs eventually, uh, I think that um, these credit markets will have a setback in the near future of the next couple of years and the Treasury shall outperform. Uh, we are now trading at two standard deviations away from the mean, both in the high yielding uh, 
credit markets and also in the corporate investment grade credit markets. So they're extremely overvalued relative to history and historical performance uh, when we compare them to the uh, treasuries of equal maturity. So, you know, in a summary, I would say it, it, it's not a very good time to be a credit uh, investor because the, the yields are very low, the credit spreads are very narrow, uh, and maybe they started to widen. And also the performance has been wonderful since 2008 lows. And if you haven't made the money in the sector already, uh, it's a little bit late to be chasing it now, Jordan. Yes, that's fantastic information, Tiho. I have a feeling this is a subject that we'll be coming back to in the weeks and months to come. And again, this segment, this episode is being recorded in the middle of November. Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the things that we'll be looking at in particular is how the European junk bond yields uh, spread relative to treasuries plays out. And we'll be also looking at how the credit spreads uh, are going to be ticking along uh, in the next couple of months and, and whether we are seeing the first stages of a widening credit spread trend uh, starting to appear in front of us, which could signal potential for equity market correction or maybe economic uh, slowdown, or in a worst case, uh, the starting the starting parts of a eventually of seeing a recession occur uh, after such a late cycle, which we discussed in a uh, previous podcast uh, not so long ago when we discussed that we are now at 101 months of expansions, one of the longest expansions of record. So really looking forward to tracking these um, financial instruments and indicators over the coming months uh, by doing this podcast with you, Jordan. That concludes episode six of the Atlas Investor podcast. Tiho, for episode seven, where will you be and what will you be covering? Uh, I will be in nearby Germany in the capital city of Berlin, eating some fam- famous German sausages and drinking beer. Unfortunately, Oktoberfest has already passed, so I'm a little bit late. Uh, nonetheless, it's cold and it's a prime time for eating some heavy food uh, and enjoying German culture. And I'll be covering uh, all all the things that are important right now in the financial markets. We'll be looking at equities, we'll be looking at bonds and credit, and we'll be summarizing some of the things such as sentiment and breath, and we're looking at the state and the conditions of the overall financial markets, and I'll be you know, letting you know if there's anything that you should be worried about uh, after having such a stellar 2017 and such a wonderful performance. Uh, you know, It's an episode not to be missed. Oh, sounds excellent to you. I'm really looking forward to that. Now, as we close, we want to thank you, the listener, for tuning into the podcast. If you have a moment, please visit iTunes and leave a review of the podcast. We would really appreciate it. And if you have a question for Tiho, please email it to us at podcast at theatlasinvestor.com. Again, that is podcast at theatlasinvestor.com. On behalf of Tiho Burkhan, thanks again for listening to the Atlas Investor Podcast. We hope to have you back here right again for episode number seven. Thank you for listening to the Atlas Investor Podcast. To be notified of future podcast episodes, visit theatlasinvestor.com and sign up for our free newsletter. 
T. Hoper Khan offers his clients a wide range of services including portfolio construction and wealth management, one-on-one -on -one consultations, global real estate opportunities, international tax planning, citizenship and residency planning, and one-on-one -on -one mentoring. For a free consultation, visit theatlasinvestor.com and contact T. Hoper Khan. 